You're listening to a sermon from First Family Church from the series, The King is in the King, Anticipation in the Books of Samuel. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. It is a sobering and staggering set of chapters, isn't it? It's a story most of you have heard, you've probably known about it. These two chapters present for us a number of topics that we could address. We could talk about how to confront someone. We could talk about the process of discipline. Uh, we could discuss doctrinal issues such as God's justice or God's mercy. We could talk about um, where do babies go when they die. There's, there's a, a large list of things to talk about from these chapters. So how do you select one and how do you, how do you get through these verses, right? Well, first of all, let me say this. We've put together a podcast that will walk you through some of those issues that we can't address in this singular service. It's been re- uh, released today. You can check either our Facebook page or possibly our website. Uh, you'll find the podcast there, and it will contain some discussion between myself, Pastor Carlos, and Pastor Chris on some of these issues that we won't cover here. So be sure to download that today and listen. I want to choose one angle that I think is a primary angle in the text. It's an angle of sowing and reaping. And what we actually see in David's life is that this is what plays out over the next probably eight or so chapters. In fact, uh, we're going to spend the next few weeks in what we would call a a mini-series within this series. This current series is called what? The Kings and the, the King. The Kings and the King. It's designed to show how all of the Old Testament, especially these narrative books, point to Christ. But in these immediate chapters, beginning in chapter 11, going through about the first part of 19, we're going to see how David's sin actually ripples out and into multiple sins by multiple people. So we're kind of calling this miniseries the sin and the sins. You could even show it in a little bloodier fashion, something like this even. It's meant to kind of catch your attention because you're going to be shocked, and rightly so, by what happens As a result of David's adultery and murder, what happens is there is adultery and murder and family conflict within his own family. Rape, a coup attempt. What we see is that David begins to reap in greater fashion and in a later time from the seeds that he sowed in this one sin. And so we're going to spend some time talking about this somewhat foreboding subject for a few weeks, but we'll always end with the glorious news that that Christ has taken care of our sin. Amen? So just hang with me through some dark moments here, some sobering times as we work our way to the beautiful message of the gospel. One more overview to make sure you're aware of. As this chapter begins, it is the beginning of of the second half of 2 Samuel. Here's a screenshot of an artistic illustration of the book. Um, As you know, chapters 1 through 10 detail and highlight David's victory. And beginning in 11, David's tragedies are chronicled. And so you can kind of keep this in front of you. It's just a, a general way to see the book. 1 through 10, victory. 11 through 20, tragedy. And of course, the last few parts we'll cover later. We're beginning the tragedy portion of 2 Samuel. And it includes and pretty much chronicles all of the reaping and sowing 
the sowing and reaping that happened in this section of, of David's life. He's about 50. He's middle-aged. And I'd encourage you also, one more time, not only the podcast, but the, the material for our Lighthouse this week is just, uh, it's always excellent, but it's above and beyond this week. I would definitely pick up any of the study guides, leadership guides, check our website, pick up the participant guide. There's a lot of extra information I think you'll want to know that pertains to this exact narrative. Let me take some time this morning and focus on the one that I think... Um, and the, the other ones aren't... They're not that they're not textual. I don't mean to say that. But I think there's one that I think is threaded throughout here that's most important for us to see. And that is the, the angle of sowing and reaping. And I draw that from a singular verse in 12.12. Will you look there for a moment? We'll see some other verses from the two chapters that Nick and Michaela read. But here is a verse that I think really shows us what's going on in this chapter as well as through about 19. 12.12 says that God told David, you did it, what? Secretly. But I will do this thing, speaking of his punishment and judgment upon David, I'll do this thing before all Israel and before the sun, or as Michaela read, in broad daylight. So something's happening here. What David thought was done uh, behind closed doors, what David thought was in secret, Actually, God says now is going to be exposed publicly. I think this is a, what I might call a hinge verse. It shows us that what's happening here is this. David sowed something secretly. David sowed something secretly. He thought. It wasn't really secret, but he thought it was. And he reaped it publicly. That seems to be the, the, the verse around which most of these following chapters now uh, flow. So let's talk about sowing and reaping today. Because you, you, you heard it initially in these two chapters. You'll hear it again next week. What's going on with these two words, sowing and reaping, from these chapters? I want to give you three observations. I need to try to make pretty good tracks here so we can cover all three of them. We got through one last service. And then we just went to prayer. And it was the Lord's uh, will for that. I'm not worried about that. But I want to try to make bigger progress if we can in this service. Here's the first observation, that, that sin isn't really hidden. It's actually planted. And if there's anything I could, I could take out of your vocabulary, take out of your thinking, it would be the idea that we hide sin. In fact, it's so hard to remove that from our thinking that I'll actually use that phrase in the next four or five minutes, and I don't even mean to. You'll catch me saying, well, you said you couldn't hide sin, but you just said we're hiding sin. We are so prone to thinking we can do something we actually can't do. You you can't hide sin. God sees it all. Amen, church? And yet we have this notion that we can do something in secret and God won't know. But the, the actual truth is, and I hope you'll just kind of log this in your memory. We never hide sin, but we do actually plant it. And it grows and sprouts at a later time. And unless those weeds are dealt with, they'll often grow up and choke us. This is how sin works. It isn't ever hidden. It's actually planted. Now, I bring that to you, not just from the the overall view of the story, but notice the last phrase of verse 27 in chapter 11. When all of the chapter has this nuance of secrecy, look at the last phrase, verse 27. And it begins with the word but. Do you see that? 
But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. After an entire 26, 27 verses of, of secret actions, the author says, oh, by the way, God knew it all. And it displeased him. That phrase, beginning with the word but, is a bookend. The other one, the other bookend is in verse 1. Look at the word but in the last phrase of verse 1. And notice how these two work together to showcase something. Chapter 11, verse 1. But David remained at Jerusalem. And so his remaining at Jerusalem, which I think was somewhat of a secret, rationalized action. He should not have been in Jerusalem. He should have been on the battlefield. should have been leading the army. But instead he stays at Jerusalem. Then he engages in a number of secret actions. He has secret desires for Bathsheba. He then secretly calls for her. Then he has this secret child. Then he uh, develops these secret plans to actually hope that uh, Uriah becomes the father, at least by appearance, you know. Hey, go sleep with your wife as a gift. Well, he doesn't do that. Then he says, well, I'll get you drunk. Maybe you'll sleep with her. He doesn't do that. He shows himself to be this really upstanding guy, doesn't he? David's frustrated, so he's been killed in battle. He secretly moves Bathsheba back to the palace, and he, in his mind, has this secret marriage going on. There's nothing secret about this, really. But all of that occurred because David stayed in Jerusalem, and yet, while David thought he was doing lots of things in secret, the last phrase is the other bookend. God knew it all, and it was very displeasing. The word displeasing there, it means to, to be grieved, to be moved to the point of a violent action inwardly. Just imagine God groaning as he watches David pretend that no one knows. You see, folks, we need to come to the realization that sin is never hidden. It's merely or actually planted, and it will grow and sprout at a later time unless we deal with it. We're going to talk about how to deal with that as the message unfolds. But just be aware, first of all, here's an observation we need to be aware of. We don't ever really hide sin after all. Everything is open to the eyes of him who sees us for what we really are. As I was thinking about this point in, in David's story and his tendency here to hide so many things, probably for you know nine months or so at least, I was, I was thinking about what is it about Secrecy that, uh, that seems alluring, attractive. Um, I think it goes to something that the writer of Hebrews says. There's something about this secret nature of things that, that seems attractive and alluring for a season, but in the end, it actually comes back on our own head. As Solomon would say in Proverbs, you dig a pit and you fall therein. You roll a stone and it comes back on you. The writer of Hebrews says that sin for a moment has, a, has an attractiveness, but it's only for a season. So that's why I think sin sometimes has this secret attraction, this secret allure to us. And when we follow that, when we, when we buy into that and say, yeah, I'll just keep this hidden. I'll just make sure nobody knows. What happens is sin grows in dark places. Sin grows in secrecy. Sin grows in anonymity. And because, because the devil knows, if, if I can keep anyone from finding out, you think you're actually safe, and it's actually the devil wrapping the cords of sin further and tighter around your neck. Because that's where sin grows, in secrecy. I, I can recall the feelings I had the first time I saw pornography in my life. 
They weren't feelings of running to tell my parents. Did you know that? <laughs> they weren't feelings like, oh, I'll tell my friends. I was uh, probably maybe third or fourth grade, maybe fifth, I'm not sure. I would say early 70s, maybe mid-70s, I was staying with a friend. My parents and their family, we were really close friends. I'm not sure if we'd moved to Tennessee or not yet. All I know is I was going to spend a week with the Watsons. And my friend, I think he just thought he was playing a trick on me, like being funny. We went to 7-Eleven. I think we were actually in Florence where he lived. And Cindy would know this family. She knows where they lived. And all I remember is Jay said to me, hey, uh, go around the end of that island, see what, you, see what you find there. And he was kind of smirking. I remember this so vividly. And if you know anything about pornography and how that works on a man's brain, the first time you see it, a chemical's released, and it cements that on your brain like an image. Well, that happened to me. I mean, I can remember this day and this moment so vividly. So I, I just was this, you know, fourth grade kid, walk around the aisle, and I turn, all of a sudden, behind all these plastic cases on this bookshelf are all, this, all these magazines, and they've got naked women on them. Now, many of the shelves have covered up most of the image, but I mean, I'm a guy, I'm a, I'm a young kid, I'm, I know what I'm looking at, and I just can't take my eyes off of that. I'm just like, it's my first exposure. Well, I turned to go back, and I said, Jay, you didn't tell me that's what was back there. And he laughed, you know. My first thought wasn't, let's go tell my parents. <laughs> my first thought wasn't, hey, let's tell your parents, Jay. My first thought wasn't, we should pray about this. What was my first thought? Take a guess. Don't tell anyone. And the devil loves to lure us in with secrecy, doesn't he? With the false assumption that you can hide something because he knows that in secrecy, that sin will grow. I'm thankful God gave me a set of parents who asked good questions, though. I'm thinking that God intervened in my life in a number of ways that I can't get into now, just protected me, and that did not remain in secret. The problem is, that's not always true, is it? Sometimes we do allow sin to grow in secrecy. We allow it to incubate in, in hiddenness and darkness. I think we would all be better off if we would just realize, you know what? There is no such thing as a hidden sin. That's, that's a lie. There is planted sin. And we can nurture it in secrecy. We can feed it in darkness. We can help it grow in, in um, the shadows but it won't be hidden. It will grow. It will sprout. And the fruit of those sinful seeds will be the very thing that one day publicly will bring great calamity to our life and possibly our family. So I want you to be moved and weighed by this principle, this observation that sin is never really hidden. You see, I think this shows us something about how God operates. God operates by what we call the laws of the harvest. And it's, a, it's an appropriate time to discuss this. We're in Iowa. It's an agricultural state. We're in harvest time already. So this fits perfectly for this time of year. Hey, this, this, this chapter shows us, and the ones following shows us, this is how God operates. We call the laws of the harvest, okay? That you reap what you sow. This is true in David's life. We'll see this unfold as David not only plants adultery, immorality, and murder. Guess what David reaps? He reaps adultery, immorality, and murder. He also reaped it after he sowed it. It was a number of months and even years before all of this 
kind of came home to haunt him, so to speak. And what's most tragic is you reap more than you sow. What David planted in one sin showed up in multiple people in multiple ways over multiple time periods. Growing up, I heard preachers say this a lot of times. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Who's heard that before? Raise your hand, would you? You've just told us you're probably at least 45. Is that right? No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I heard that a lot growing up. It kind of flows well, but can we just say that it's exactly true? It's the laws of the harvest in different words, and the laws of the harvest are simply telling us what we see in observation one, that you never really hide sin. You simply plant it, and unless you deal with it, it will grow and sprout, and it will bring destruction and calamity. In fact, listen very carefully, church. What you tolerate in secrecy will one day subjugate you personally. And I wrote this down in my journal this week that when sin grows in deceitful secrecy, it will ultimately be revealed in detrimental calamity. So what am I hoping that you'll take from this first observation? I just hope you'll do one thing. Be willing to get your sin out in the open. After all, God already knows. If you don't, it'll stink, it'll smell, (laughs) and then everyone will know. Are you with me? I can recall when our kids were, two of them were going to Des Moines Christian. And one day, I I forget when or where exactly, but I remember we had had a blue Lumina. And for some reason, it just started smelling funny in the car, like uh, putrefied milk. But it wasn't real strong, but I thought maybe somebody left a banana peel somewhere, or, or maybe uh, there's a piece of food under the sea. I don't know, you know. Well, the next morning we came out, I took the kids to school, and it was really bad. And they're like, Dad, what is that? I'm like, I don't know, but that's rank, you know. And, and so, so it, we, we couldn't find it. We looked under the seats, uh, we looked in the, in the glove box, thinking, and so this went on all week. Like by Friday, they're like, Dad, that's awful. We got, you know, we took the car, we got it washed. We, we were afraid underneath it, maybe something died up in the engine. We couldn't find anything, but it got worse and worse. And by Friday, I mean, really, we're just like, roll the windows down. We've got to find something that smells decent. Uh, at some point, we looked in the trunk, and I don't know who left it uh, or, or much of the detail. All I know is there was some kind of either carton of milk or it had spilled from some groceries and somehow it dried. I don't know, maybe the heat on dried milk. I don't know exactly, but we found it because we got real close. And we're like, oh, that's it. There's the problem. So we got it out in the open, opened the trunk, opened the doors. We did all we could to clean it. But nothing was going to change until we dealt with the root issue. Are you with me? And I'm just hoping this morning, if you take nothing away from what we save now and what we'll say in the next few moments, don't let sin putrefy in your life. Don't think secrecy is actually hiding anything. It's just rotting and growing and smelling. And one day, the folks around you are going to be like, do you smell that? I think it's coming from your life. Like, man, that's rank. Oh, I'd much rather. Let's just get sin on the table. 
For those are the secrets he knows already. Let's let him deal with things that we think we're hiding when we're really not. Is this hard? Yes. It is very difficult. Hope I can explain how we can accomplish that, though, in the next few minutes. Before we move on, just three verses to kind of support this principle. That we don't hide anything, it's actually just being planted, that God does operate in a sowing and reaping kind of environment. Here's three verses, you ought to just write down the references. Hosea, I believe it's chapter 8. Here God promises that if you sow the wind, you will reap the what? Whirlwind. I won't go into the context here and the judgment on the nations except to say this. God seems to say, when you sow something like the wind, don't be surprised if you reap something greater than the wind. It shows the, the principles by which God operates. He says twice in the New Testament that if you sow sparingly or if you sow bountifully, you'll also then reap sparingly. You'll reap bountifully. Here, by the way, sowing and reaping is presented in a positive light. So the point is here in 2 Corinthians 9 as well as Galatians 6. You'll see that next. All we're saying is that these verses prove and they show God operates in a sowing and reaping kind of environment. And if you sow good acts, if you sow... um, Uh, bountifully, then you'll reap in that way. And if you sin in that same way, you'll reap the same manner of sin. So I just want to make sure we understand, we're not hiding anything when we live secret lives and, and coddle sin and think that nobody knows. God actually knows. It displeases Him and it will come home to haunt us later unless we deal with it. How do we deal with that then? I think the very first step is to realize observation number two. That sin isn't only horizontal. It's primarily vertical. This may be the hardest of the observations to grasp. I think it's very intriguing in this passage that Nathan, from what I can gather in the text at least in chapter 12, he never really says to David, you sinned against Bathsheba, even though he did. And there may be one verse where it alludes to that in some way. But, but Nathan really comes hard in saying, you have despised the word of the Lord. You have scorned the Lord. You have given reason for the enemies to blaspheme the Lord. It's all vertical to Nathan. And then when David says, where is it, uh, verse, um, his confession, you know, he says, I have sinned, verse 13, I have sinned, what does he say next? Against the Lord. David's change, David's repentance didn't really begin to happen until he realized who he actually sinned against. And he sinned primarily against the Lord. You see, sin is primarily, first and foremost, a vertical issue. It's secondarily horizontal. So I wrote this down. Process this for a bit, would you? Sin is disobedience to God that then has detrimental effects upon others in varying degrees. That's what happens when we sin. We disobey God and then the people around us begin to feel the effects of our disobedience in varying degrees. Until a man or a woman understands that this is the real root issue, I don't think much change will happen. I think typically they'll try to, uh, you know, placate the person that's upset with them. 
They'll try to appease the person that they're not in relationship with that's right. It could be their spouse. It could be another person. But until they realize, I have sinned against God, and then they're feeling the effects of this, our change will only be surface and shallow. We've really sinned against a holy God, church. That needs to weigh on us. We need to realize we can't hide anything from him. And his holiness is what we've violated. Now, as you've heard us explain these two initial observations, I think it's important to pause here for a moment and and maybe provide uh, a simple Todd's tip to you. Like, maybe you're thinking, how have, am, am I secretly hiding some sin? Am I, am I really just more worried about what people think or am I uh, really concerned about God's perspective? Like, how do I know if that's happening in my life? Like, I, I don't know if I am or not. I, I just don't know, but I, I, I'm, I'm wondering now. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm convicted or if I'm just feeling humanly guilty. Help me, Todd. Help me process. How do I know if that's really happening in my life? Well, let me give you two ways that I think will help us figure out if observations one and two is happening in your life. I must warn you, these have some opinions in them. All right? That's why they're called a Todd's tip. Otherwise, I'd call it a Bible verse, okay? I don't have an explicit verse from these chapters to say this is always true. I tend to think from my informal research and from the implications of this text that this is true. But I need to be honest with you and and just forthright, there is some opinion here. But I think there are two ways you can begin to see, you know, I've got some secret sin issues that I'm just not being truthful about. When these two things occur, you rationalize your behavior and you're defensive to others. And if you're married, you're already nodding your head. You ever ask your spouse a question and then they just respond like like, like you started World War III? And you're thinking, I just was curious about that entry in the checkbook. Like I was wondering what that was for. And you're acting like I'm accusing you of, you ever been there? You can nod, it's okay, be safe, relax. Yeah, you have, sure you have. And you're like, and their defensiveness clues you into something. I think I'm going to ask you a few more questions. Something's up. Or maybe to your children, you've had that happen. You ask a question, and it's like you suddenly open up Pandora's box, and it says to you, I think I'll ask you a few more questions, right? We find that people are defensive because for a while they've been rationalizing behavior. This is what David did. The last phrase of 11.1 is a, is a rationalized phrase. But David remained in Jerusalem. But he must have been rationalizing away all of the reasons, all the, all the things that said, hey, I can stay here in Jerusalem, I can do this, I can do that. And it appears that if anyone did ask him, hey, David, this doesn't sound real wise. This doesn't sound like it's in keeping with your job. David, this isn't a good idea. If they did ask him, we just not recording the text, but apparently he didn't listen to it. My opinion is, there were people in David's life that said, man, David, this isn't going well, dude. Like, the first two tries to get Uriah to own this baby that you actually created, that didn't work, you're going to kill this guy? Like, I think there's some people who probably said some things up in those higher ranks. He's not listening to anything. He's rationalizing his own behavior, and he's defensive about it to other people. And if no one can ever lean into you with feedback, if no one can ever lean, lean into you with input, if people you love can ever say, hey, can we talk about something? If you're always defensive, the problem's not with the other person. So, for what it's worth, if you're wondering, 
man, have I got some secrecy issues going on? Am I hiding something? And am I seeing this as, as, as a horizontal thing more than a vertical thing? I would ask yourself two questions. Do I rationalize my behavior? Am I def- and am I defensive to others? And if those come up as yes, I would do some real heart work. I'd get in front of the mirror, God's word and God, and say, Lord, peel back the layers. What's going on inside? So observation one, sin isn't really hidden. It's uh, actually planted. Observation two, sin isn't only horizontal. It's primarily vertical. And once we realize that, then change will begin to happen. David knew this in Psalm 51. Let me read these two verses for you, verses 3 and 4. Listen to how he words this. And I think this is quite intriguing, if I could say so myself, because you would think he would apologize to the people involved. And maybe he did. We don't know. But in his psalm of repentance, here's what he says. Verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned. Really, David? Is that actually, I mean, you didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah? Really? Against God and God only you've sinned and done what is evil in your sight? I don't know how to answer that question, but I'll tell you what David's heartbeat was. He saw his sin as primarily, and I would even say maybe exclusively at this point, his repentance was vertical. And when things get vertical, things get right. Have you been vertical with God about your sin? That's why observation three is, is beautiful news to us. Let me just mention it briefly. Observation three, that sin isn't ultimately final. Amen, church? I mean, this isn't the end of David's life or story. Sin can be truly forgiven. So if we read further in Psalm 51, let me just read some portions of verses 7 through 17 to you. David writes this. This is a repentance prayer about the sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And then my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you'll not delight in sacrifice or, or I would give it. You'll not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. You know what God's after? God's after repentance. A willingness to lay your life out on his surgery table and say, Lord, get all the secrets out on the table. Then, then, what does he say here? then I'll teach transgressors, then I'll sing with joy, then I'll know the the power of your presence. But as long as we're willing to hide in the shadows and keep things in the corners, protect our sin, we'll never know the true forgiveness offered in Christ. It takes bringing that before the Lord and saying, Lord, here's here's the real situation. Please forgive me. Now listen very careful. That means you have to say three words that are hard for you to say. Every eye watching me, every ear listening, 
You have to say these three words. I need help. I need help. Say, Todd, how do we need help? Well, you need help, first of all, by the blood of Christ. Amen? Only the blood of Christ can forgive sin. But you also need help from the body of Christ. Because the body of Christ is that which calls you into accountability. It's that which walks with you as you are learning to live in a different, authentic, open fashion. Not in a secret fashion. That's why I think 1 John chapter 1 is so important to this idea of of coming clean and learning how to live in a, a life that's not secret but open. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says this. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, that's different than secrecy, isn't it? That's openness, transparency. If we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's the body of Christ. And the blood of Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. So you see what the two things are that bring you the help you need? You need the blood of Christ to forgive you and the body of Christ to help you. So when you say, Todd, I need help, what what that means is this. I need the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. Without those, man, there is no forgiveness for sure without the blood of Christ. And there's probably not the help we need to to walk this journey in a long-term fashion without the body of Christ. That's why I say to you, disconnecting from church Living in isolation is just asking for Satan to prey upon secrecy even greater. He loves to play in isolation. And he loves to play in isolation in the places of your life that are, that are hurt. And so we withdraw from those who've hurt us. We withdraw from people who've maybe done something to us, we think. Instead of coming to the table and opening that up and talking about it and figuring out how to move forward, we just kind of isolate, pull back. We harbor bitterness and resentment. Satan loves that. He thinks, you know, he does his work in secret places. And all that does is grow the, the, the seeds of sin where they sprout. And then there's just calamity later. There's a better way forward than that, church. It's by bringing all of our sin to Christ and saying, Lord, I'm, I am a sinful person. And that sin has been against you first and foremost. And Lord, will you by your blood forgive it, first of all, because Christ died for our sins. By the way, John also said this, that when Christ came, he destroyed the works of the devil. He did not bury them, hide them, or manage them. Amen, church? He destroyed them. Christ has killed sin. So if we are in him, the potential is there to live victoriously, not secretly. Not to hide sin, but to win victory over it. We bring it with the Lord. We lay ourselves open before Him. We ask Him, Lord, do what only you can do. We say, Lord, I need help. From your blood for sure for forgiveness and from your body to learn how to walk forward in this. In thinking this through, I was reminded of a man that I met in Mexico several years ago. He was the partner for one of our, a missionary there named Lanny Ashcraft. I visited Lanny twice years ago. And one of those visits, we were trying to get a, a large 66-passenger bus out of a mud hole. And so this guy that I met, and I forget his name. Honestly, I do. But he was a big guy, and he was Lanny's partner. And so he jumped out of the bus, and he told me and some other youth leaders, we had about 60 kids with us uh, for a youth group. Maybe this was the trip with uh, maybe 20. I forget. But we had some junior hires with us, high schoolers, and he said, leaders, get out. You push the back of the bus. 
He said, I'll push the side of the bus and together we'll just get it going that direction and we'll get it out of this mud hole we're in so we can go on some evangelism trips. Well, behind him was a really large cactus and it kind of laid open and I think there's a name for it. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe some of you guys would know, but it laid open like that. And I think Lanny said, just be careful. He said, I've got plenty of footing here. Well, uh, he said, gun the bus. And so the bus like that and we pushed the back and he pushed the side but the bus went the opposite direction towards the cactus and it just knocked him into it and he fell right into the cactus plant like this and he's sitting I mean he's basically laying in this cactus plant he's, he lets out a ah like that real loud yell and so we're just like oh dude like, you know, like, that's gotta hurt right here's what he does though watch this this is intriguing to me he says, I need help. Because I was thinking, well, just, you know, sit up, but then he would have put more pressure on his rear end. That would have been a bad idea. And he said, but I thought, what? you know, he couldn't, he couldn't lift any part of his body because it would have put pressure on him. He had to have us come around him and pretty much lift him off kind of at one moment like that. Because whatever he would have done by himself would have applied pressure in the wrong place. And he said, I'm helpless. I can't get off if I'm not lifted off, is what he said, basically. So we gathered around him, and we got him off. And I think for the rest of the time we were there, I mean, he just had whelps and issues. <laughs> we were like, oh, dude, you still got things going. I mean, it, was, it was awful. I'll never forget the moment. I mean, just seeing him in that position and yet hearing him say, I need help. I can't get out of here alone. And this week, and just thinking through this text, that's what some of us need to say. I need help. I can't get out of this alone. And that's a good thing. You need the Lord, and you need this church. Now, at first, when I thought that, it sounded overwhelming to me because I thought, man, I, I, don't, I don't have room for that many more people on my plate. I'm being very transparent with you here, okay? Like, I, of the couples I'm counseling, Julie and I are meeting with, like, I, I just don't know God. I mean, I love this church. I want to be their pastor. I love them. But I don't know how many more people, if I, we get, you know, X amount of cards turned in. I don't know what to do with that, God. And I've been overwhelmed in the last few weeks, like, thinking about this. Like, man, I want to help them desperately, but I'm, I'm limited. I'm just one guy. And I'm not even that good of a one guy sometimes. I just have a few answers for you, right? Take you to God's Word, show you what I know. And the Lord just came to me in a very real way, probably the last couple of days, actually, and just said, Todd, there may be some ways, and you sense there are some official needs pastorally. But there is a staff of 16 people who can help this church. So I want to say to you, any of our staff can and will help you, not just me. We have, what, seven, eight, ten elders. I want to say to you, any of our elders can and will help you if you need it. We have seven, eight, ten deacons. I'll say to you this, any of our deacons can and will help you. We have lighthouse leaders who love this church any of our lighthouse leaders can and will help you. Now, if you're one of those groups, you may be thinking, oh my goodness, what has he done to me? I've not done anything to you that you haven't actually said you would do as a member of this church. You've said, I'll help. And so just this morning, even praying through this, I just felt a, a renewed sense of confidence that God has equipped this church to shepherd the people in it who need help. And some of those shepherds are in these chairs right here. There are those of you who 
are walking with God, who've known victory over sin. You could take one person's name and say, I'll help you get to a better place with the blood of Christ as your basis for forgiveness and then the body of Christ as that environment we can help you. And if more of us kind of owned that responsibility, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be a beautiful picture of the body of Christ at work? Man, I'm just praying that that's what will happen as God revives our heart in these 40 days of prayer and fasting that we'll see multiple people shouldering up with those who are saying, I need help. I can't get out of here alone. Yeah, let me help you. And we'll bring people into the light, out of the secret corners, out of the dark shadows. Sin will be exposed, and when the light hits the sin, man, God's grace and mercy and blood forgives it and kills it, and there's victory. That's why I say to you, sin isn't ultimately final. It can truly be forgiven, but only in the power of the gospel. So you have to be willing to bring your sin to the Lord and ask him by his power to cover it at the cross. That's where sin is defeated. Amen, church? Would you this morning be willing to just lay your life before God and put your sin at the cross and let the cross do what only it can do, be bigger and stronger than your sin. Let God's grace win. Three observations from these two chapters. We, did through, we went through them in a hurry. My prayer is that, that you'll see the reality of this and that you'll commit, not to, you'll commit to a lifestyle of not hiding sin and living secretly, but instead dealing with sin and living in the, the, the beauty of God's grace. In fact, can I give it to you in one single sentence and then I'll pray with you. Here's what I think the reality is from these two chapters. Here's kind of what I think we, we can't miss. That it is inevitable. We will reap what we sow. You can't change that. It's both good and bad, by the way. But God's grace is unfathomable. We can be forgiven and restored, even in the middle of painful and long-term consequences. And yes, David went through a lot of those, but he was not washed up and his life wasn't over, amen? And it all started with David's willingness to bring it into the open. I have sinned against the Lord. When that's our first prayer and step, there is hope and there is grace. Let's pray. Can we, church?